How far should California go when it comes to legalizing street drugs? Local veterans say they want access to psychedelics. And changes are coming to two San Diego neighborhoods, from a do-over in the Midway District to a long-overdue update for Barrio Logan. We're diving into a busy week for those who decide what our neighborhoods will look like. I'm Matt Hoffman, and this is KPBS Roundtable. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. What do you guys like? Indica, Sativas, Hybrids, the Thin Mint? It's gonna be one, one of my favorites in the store regardless. Uh, yeah. Nice and pretty, nice and pretty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's package up an eighth of that uh, blue dream right there. Cool. That sound is a trip back in time from the KPBS News Archives when the first cannabis dispensaries opened in San Diego. And in just a few weeks, California will reach four years of full legalization. The push for that experience of walking into a store and getting what you need was slow building, with medicinal marijuana being the entry point hailed as an effective therapy for a wide range of physical and mental conditions. Now we're starting to see the parallels with a different kind of high, psychedelics. NBC7 investigative reporter Mark Payton found some of the biggest advocates are veterans who say they should not have to leave the country to heal their wounds of war. She's back on KPBS Roundtable this week. Hey, Mari. Hi, Matt. Glad to be here. Great to have you here. So let's start with the ex-Navy SEAL who's the focus of your story. We'll hear some sound from him in a moment. But what sort of condition was he in once his military service ended? I mean, Matt, he was in really bad shape. He was really honest with me. He said he did 13 years of deadly combat tours as a U.S. Navy SEAL, and he felt worse, he said, after every deployment. So eventually he had to medically retire, but he told me he was depressed, he was anxious, withdrawn, he was drinking too much, he admitted sometimes half a bottle of bourbon at a time, and at times he was suicidal. And at the point, at that point, he had two kids and a wife, and he said he just was not paying attention to them. All right, well, let's hear from Marcus Capone. Here he is talking about going to Mexico to use Ibogaine. It's a type of psychedelic root bark that comes from Africa. He also talked about the position that he's in as a veteran having to leave the country to try and get this kind of help. It seemed like every time I came back from a deployment, just it got, you know, it got worse. You know, I was just numb and cold and hard. I think what affected me more was individuals that I served with or I, I, um, that were really close with that uh, we lost in the war and you know that those were those were tough and I think those are still tough you can't hide from the medicine it's going to it's going to reach down and it's going to pull out everything that is probably affecting you some of that stuff is really uncomfortable uh, when you're you know talking to your dead dad or talking to your dead buddy you feel like your 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 brain was rebooted why should individuals go overseas for war come back here not get the help they're looking for and then have to go back overseas or 
outside the borders uh, to get treated. So we know he went across the border to get these psychedelics. Do we know if they helped Marcus or what have you heard from him and his family? I mean, without a doubt, 100 percent. He even said to me, quote, it was literally not even overnight. It was almost instantaneous. He said he felt like a different person. A huge weight had been lifted off of his shoulders after years of traditional, you know, Western therapies and trying different um, prescription medications. He said he felt like a totally different person and he was finally ready to become himself again. Now, Mari, you report that Marcus had to seek a medical retirement. How is he doing now? Well, he's doing much better present day, but right after he was medically retired, he wasn't doing well. He said he saw psychiatrists, therapists, doctors. He even went to a, a brain research center where he was trying meditation, yoga, art classes. He was also on antidepressants and pills to help him focus and then other pills to help him sleep. So just a bad combination of things. But he does say that after that one Ibogaine treatment in Mexico, it was like a huge weight had been lifted off of his shoulders. Um, he did a trip that was about 12 hours but that was about four and a half years ago. And what was crazy was he told me that he hasn't been on a prescription pill ever since then. Now let's turn to the push to make it so that veterans don't have to go elsewhere. Senate Bill 519 is the one to watch in Sacramento. Focusing first on veterans, Mari, what would it allow? So basically, it would give veterans access to psychedelic therapies. We're talking about drugs like LSD, ecstasy, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, and more. People wouldn't have to travel to places like Mexico to access this type of therapy. They could be doing it right here in San Diego. And we know that this doesn't stop at veterans. We could see several drugs legalized for personal possession. What are those and how soon could we be talking here? Okay, so it'd be anyone 21 years of age or older. So they would be allowed to keep a certain amount of each type of these psychedelics. They could grow them or even give them away to another adult. The bill would also allow for their use and their research without being criminalized. So... Interestingly, other cities have already made these changes. Denver became the first city to decriminalize magic mushrooms back in May 2019, and then Oakland and Santa Cruz followed. And some advocates say that this could pass as early as next spring. And talking to some of those advocates and Marcus, I mean, is there like some documented, you know, medical research that shows that psychedelics, you know, could help people who are going through, you know, maybe a tough time? Well, interestingly, there's been even more and more research done, and we're talking about really um, reputable hospitals and universities like Stanford and John Hopkins. They're really putting a lot of money and effort into some of this research. So a lot more people are getting on board. It's becoming a little bit more mainstream than before. And we know that this bill recently cleared the state Senate, but a lack of vote of East County Senator Brian Jones. He is not on board with a wider rollout. Here's some of what he told you. The Senate bill uh, goes way too far as far as decriminalizing the psychedelic drugs um, and making them you know, completely legal on the street. I, I can't support that. But Jones also says that he's open to the idea of exploring these treatments, at least for veterans, right? Right. So when we talk to him, the way it's written now, he just says he couldn't support the bill. But both his dad and his grandfather served in the military. And his grandfather was actually a POW in World War II and struggled with PTSD thereafter. So he does have a personal connection to the cause. And he said if the law were narrower and only talked about therapy for vets, he could support it. When marijuana first became legal back in 2018, an entire industry of growers and distributors and labs came with it. Could we see that from SB 519 to Mari? I mean, you know, possession is one thing, but would there be a clear path to getting it or producing these drugs? I mean, it's too early to say, but obviously it's entirely possible. I can't predict the future, but that is a concern for people on the other side, right? I mean, would this be widespread? Would it be 
you know, would you be able to buy it retail stores, that sort of thing. So right now, that definitely is a concern for people. Yeah, or would the state have to make some agency to oversee that. Um, but generally, is there a timeline in Sacramento for this bill? Or what sort of is coming next here? So SB 519 narrowly passed the Senate. It is currently in the assembly, which obviously nothing will get done over the holiday break, but it could get changed along the way to the governor's desk. It's already been changed quite a few times before. Again, the supporters, they're really hopeful about this, saying it could pass as early as this spring. We know that there's a lot of groups that work to help veterans with mental health issues, especially in a military community like here in San Diego. Going back to that Navy SEAL in your story, Marcus Capone, he's launched his own group. And what is its focus? What does it do? So yeah, after his own life-changing experience with Ibogaine, Marcus basically told me as soon as he got back to the U.S., he told his wife that he needed to help other people just like him. So he and his wife started this organization called Vets based in San Diego. It stands for Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions. So far, they've paid for hundreds of veterans to seek psychedelic treatments outside the U.S. where it's legal. But they're also doing other types of work now. They're doing advocacy work. They're also raising money from private donors for things like research. I mentioned this at major universities like Stanford. It's definitely a fascinating story from a human and also a political perspective. Our listeners can find it at NBCSanDiego.com. It's by our guest, investigative reporter Mari Payton. And Mari, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Matt. My pleasure. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Since that's a topic that deals with mental health and suicidal thoughts, we want to remind everyone that help is available. It's free and can be accessed quickly by phone or online. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline's number is 1-800-273-8255. You can also text HOME to 741-741. More resources and a live chat can be found at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. This is an eventful week for two of San Diego's oldest neighborhoods. Coming up, we'll dive into the changes ahead for Barrio Logan, which hasn't had a proper community growth plan for decades. But first, a reset in the Midway District. The city is back at square one, selecting a proposal that will redevelop a major chunk of land, which includes the current sports arena site. Jennifer Van Grove from the San Diego Union Tribune is here with an update on the process and the pitches that are already coming in. Welcome back to Roundtable, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Okay, before we get into the new ideas for the Midway, explain for us how the city's plans over the past year or so got sidetracked. Well, they got completely derailed, actually. So what happened was the city was in February 2020. They were going through a very traditional request for proposal process. What happened instead was that San Diego heard from a state housing agency that this process ran afoul of the Surplus Land Act. And that act, it's a law that's been around since the 80s, 
but it's been, it was amended in 2019 and those changes went into effect in 2020. And as it turns out, the city, which was thinking about the site, thinking about offering it for lease, the city thought that it didn't have to go through the surplus land process because it was a lease and not a sale. Well, it turns out those 2019 amendments applied the application to four lease properties as well. And so HCD, which is the state agency, they came back and told the city, you did this all wrong from start to finish. So you have to start everything over. The vision for revamping this neighborhood relies on lifting the 30 foot height restrictions for buildings there and voters gave their approval for it last year. So why is that still a big question mark for the city here? The question mark has to do with how the city put the ballot measure on the ballot. So the city chose not to do an additional environmental impact report for this ballot measure. And so the city was sued and Save Our Access, which is trying to kind of get the vote overturned, they sued on the grounds that the city, you know, this was an illegal process. It looks as if they're going to win. A judge has has said in a tentative ruling that the city should have done an EIR and that would then make this whole ballot measure moot. That throws kind of a wrinkle into the process. However, I would say all the teams that I've talked to don't believe it's a deal breaker. Um, Maybe there'll be a second vote at some later date, but it it certainly complicates the matter. One of the proposals that you wrote about is called Hometown SD, and that's a partnership with developers, home builders, and a sports real estate firm. What do you think is noteworthy about this plan or what sort of stands out for you? The Hometown SD group, that's led by Monarch Group and JMI Sports. And so the really interesting hook there is, is, you know, if you're a sports fan, it's JMI Sports. You know them from building Petco Park. They're building Snapdragon Stadium, as it's now being called. And they have a twist on how they see the arena functioning here. They don't want to keep the existing arena. They want to blow it up, but they want to build a smaller one. And it's placed that the existing arena is 16,000 seats. JMI wants to do a 10,000 seat capacity. And some teams are emphasizing, I mean, they're all going to say they're emphasizing affordable housing because that's a big component here. But Hometown SD is unique in that they want to redo the arena, but they want to make it smaller. You also reported on another proposal that's being branded Discover Midway, and this is from the same group that was selected from the initial proposals earlier this year. What are you seeing from this group? So Discover Midway is Brookfield Properties. It's ASM Global, which is the current arena operator. And then it's two new partners. It's Affirmed Housing and National Core, and those are affordable housing builders. Um, What they want to do is they want to renovate the existing arena. They want to reskin it. So it would obviously stay in place. It would still have 16,000 seats, but it would just look completely different. They released some renderings this week, which show a 12 to 20 foot roof articulation. It was inspired by waves and bird wings and boat sails. I think it looks like a shark, but, but uh, the interesting thing there is that it looks completely different than than the arena that we know today. They also want to do a pedestrian bridge to link the north West corner to the San Diego River Trail. And do you think, Jennifer, that that proposal might have an advantage being that those partners were chosen by the city in their original proposal? 
I would say that there's pros and cons. So Brookfield was in active negotiations with the city before. However, it was a different administration. This new administration under Todd Gloria has different priorities. And plus, um, the city has indicated, you know, a totally different view here, right? So affordable housing has to come first. But they they have the advantage in that they've they've kind of gone down part of the path. I would say, though, that the city is really going to take a holistic look at all of these proposals. Penny Moss, who is um, the director of real estate now for the city, she's she's relatively new. I don't think that she's going to give preferential treatment to any one team. Uh, And in fact, I think she'll probably spend the next 90 days because they're in this 90 day negotiation window trying to get everyone to kind of bump up or present as much affordable housing as possible before they get to the next stage. So I would say Brookfield may have a slight upper hand in that they've dealt with the city already on this matter, but I don't know that it's going to translate into them, you know, getting an upper hand with council members, which are who will weigh in during this process. So the bids are in, we've seen the flashy renderings. When do we expect the city to choose a new partner for this redevelopment? Well, I, you know, I have to temper expectations and say, I think it's going to be a very long time. So the period that we're in now is a state mandated good faith negotiation period. It's a 90 day period that will end on March 4th. From there, the city will take each of these proposals, all five of them, to the city's land use and housing committee. And then they'll get feedback from land use and housing. And most likely all five will go to council. And so from there, I don't know what the process looks like. And I don't know that the city knows what the process looks like, but it could be months (laughs) before we have a winner. Yeah. So it sounds like that current sports arena isn't going anywhere anytime soon. And because we know, you know, aside from the bidding process, the construction effort will take years to complete, but is there a target window here? Or like, when could we see a new sports arena and some housing and buildings in that area? I mean, it really depends on who you ask. I think most of the proposals, though, they're very excited to um, hit the ground running as soon as possible. Some of the, like, the process could be delayed if there needs to be another vote to raise the height limit. The process could be delayed if uh, HCD has has an issue with something that happens, although I don't necessarily expect that because the city and the state are, are in lockstep right now. And then depending on what team wins and what they're proposing there there might be you know some zoning permitting issues that need to be sorted out so i i don't know unfortunately i i do know they really all want to break ground as soon as possible i've been talking with jennifer van grove she covers growth and development for the ut and thanks so much for your time today jennifer thanks for having me let's check in on another san diego neighborhood one that waited more than 40 years for what happened this week the city now has a new vision for barrio logan's growth and development the long wait coincided with decisions that literally split the neighborhood into two and put residents in the crosshairs of pollutants that are linked to asthma and other conditions affecting a community that's largely people of color kpbs racial justice and social equity reporter christina kim is here to explain why people are hoping that this small bureaucratic step will make a big difference. Hey, Christina. Hey, Matt. Okay, Christina, people might be asking why this took so long. The city tried to address the Barrio Logan plan a few years back, but it got shelved by voters. Before we get into the specifics here of this new plan, what's some of the backstory that got us to this point? Yeah, Matt, this plan has not been updated in 43 years. It's the oldest community plan, which is kind of just outlines future growth for a neighborhood in the city. 
And that's despite years of effort by the community. So I just can't underscore enough how big and celebratory this felt this week for those who have been working on this plan to get approved. In 2008, the neighborhood planners and industry all started meeting and working together in a series of over like 50 meetings for five years. Together, they devised the 2013 community plan, which was the basis of the plan that just got approved by city council. But then, as you mentioned, it was rolled back by a city referendum that was backed by maritime industry, who felt that the plan, particularly around this 65-acre transition zone, would negatively affect the shipping industry. So that was a huge blow. And for years, different factions of interest in Barrio Logan, such as the Environmental Health Coalition and the ship repair industry, were kind of at a standstill. Until 2019, when representatives finally started talking again, and in 2020, they signed a memorandum of understanding to really get the plan, move it forward. Because as we, as I said, it's been 43 years since it was updated. Now, a few more steps are needed before final approval. The buffer zone between industry and residential is being revived in this new plan. Is the city confident that it won't be challenged again here? Yeah, right now the city planners are confident that this plan won't be challenged again. I spoke to a city representative who told me that it's highly unlikely and pointed to just how little pushback there was even at the city council vote. There is one business, New Leaf Biofuel, that would like an exemption. But again, we're just at a really different spot than we were in 2014. The health issues caused by the environment and air quality in Barrio Logan have been well documented. Is there something in this new plan that supporters think will improve that situation? Yeah, there's several things outlined in the 2021 community plan update for Barrio Logan that really seek to address the environmental racism of the past that has led to this bad air quality and, as you mentioned, increased asthma attacks. So for one, there's that buffer zone, which the plan calls the transition zone. This is going to separate heavy industrial activities from the port from where people live and play. The buffer zone is just going to be allowed for commercial zoning, so there's not going to be any heavy industry or housing allowed. There's also a plan within this updated community plan to establish designated truck routes so that diesel 18-wheelers aren't using residential streets to get from the port to the freeway. That's seen as a huge win for a lot of these planners and residents. And in addition to that, There's plans for more parks, bike lanes to be connected to the rest of the city, and there's a discussion to include a freeway lid for I-5 to block some of the pollution coming in from the freeway. Naomi Sanchez, a longtime Barrio Logan resident, is one of the voices in your story. Here's what she said about waiting this long for a new community plan and making sure that it doesn't open the door to people like her being displaced. It does not make up for all of the years of injustice, but it's definitely a better step moving forward for our communities and our future generations. It definitely will give people the tranquility of knowing they're going to have somewhere to live next month. Barrio Logan is not far from downtown, the East Village, and the Gas Lamp, all places where rents are continuing to skyrocket. You just hosted a KPBS community conversation all about gentrification. Naomi Sanchez, who we just heard from, echoed those concerns for her community. Is there anything in this plan that might help avoid displacement of current residents, especially in a place that's largely people of color? There is. This community plan is the first in the city to include anti-displacement measures to combat displacement because of gentrification and just the fact that rents are just too high for people living there. So these measures include strengthening tenant protection so that tenants have more time to relocate if a building is being removed and guaranteeing that any housing units that are demolished for new construction will be replaced. All of this, of course, needs to be approved by the city. 
But I think some of the most expansive parts of these plans that really deal with gentrification are one, that any new construction in Barrio Logan has to have 15% affordable housing. That's a 5% bump from the rest of the city where it's just 10%. In addition to that, any new developments have to give preference to surrounding Barrio Logan residents for 75% of their units. This is really kind of groundbreaking for community plans in San Diego and just one of the reasons why residents who have been really fighting for this are just so thrilled at the vote. KPBS Midday Edition aired your community conversation earlier this week. Our listeners can also find it on our KPBS YouTube page. And whether it's Barrio Logan or San Diego as a whole, what's something new that you learned in your discussion that you found maybe especially interesting or maybe thought-provoking? Matt, it's so hard to choose just one takeaway because I have to admit I just had the most amazing conversation and opportunity to learn from our speakers, Isaac Martin of UC San Diego, Julie Corrales of the Environmental Health Coalition, and Tau Baraka of Imperial Barbershop. So if you will allow me, I'm going to give you my three takeaways that I got. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Go ahead. All right. So one, when we think of gentrification, we tend to think about it as something that can only be solved by interventions or solutions within the neighborhood that's being gentrified. But something that Isaac Martin said is that we also have to think about gentrification as something that's outside of the communities that are being gentrified. He recommended building and ensuring that there's affordable housing in other, say, more wealthier areas because gentrification is kind of a domino effect. If people are being pushed into another neighborhood, it's because they can't afford the neighborhood that they were formerly residing in. Two is that a lot of violence that occurs in gentrification is when new neighbors move into, say, culturally rich areas like Barrio Logan and Southeast but they don't recognize their class or race privilege and they don't immerse themselves by frequenting local stores and really getting civically involved with the residents that are already there. So it's really just like a, what I heard from Julie is don't just move in, but move in and engage with the community that you are moving into. And three is just that there are community driven solutions and policies that can slow displacement and communities can and should learn from each other. And I think it was just a really hopeful conversation because at the end of the day, people should have the right to decide what San Diego is going to look like and be like in the future. Christina Kim is our KPBS racial justice and social equity reporter. And thanks so much for your time, Christina. Thank you, Matt. We just focused on two communities in San Diego, but there's a flurry of important work happening across the county this week. Supervisors just signed off on changes to the McClellan Palomar Airport in Carlsbad. That will expand the runway in a way that would allow more commercial flights. There's also news happening in the South Bay. This is an opportunity to invest in a community that has been underrepresented and underinvested in for decades. And this is an opportunity for us to build something that future generations of San Diegans will certainly cherish and enjoy. By fostering long-term partnerships with these communities, city parks and other urban green spaces are working to ensure that every community has a meaningful chance to build a mutually beneficial relationship with the surrounding wildlife and its habitats. That's San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria and Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland. They're talking about the millions of federal dollars that will help build a brand new park in San Isidro. Read all about these stories anytime at kpbs.org. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's edition of KPBS Roundtable, and thank you to my guests, Mari Payton from NBC San Diego, San Diego Union Tribune reporter Jennifer Van Grove, and KPBS Race and Equity reporter Christina Kim. If you missed any part of our show, you can listen anytime on the KPBS Roundtable podcast. I'm Matt Hoffman. Join us next week on Roundtable. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.